Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This is message number one of the series, Behold an Advent Celebration, with speaker Pastor Joe Brownlee entitled, Mary's Song, from Luke 1, 46 through 55. You can find the sermon outline for this message at enewlife.com. morning as we consider the nature of true worship, I just pray that you would open our eyes to see worship how you want us to see it, to understand it for what you say that it is. God, I just pray this morning as we open the word together that you would give us your customized message for every heart that's here. And God, be with us in this time. May it be your time. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Christmas season is upon us, and it's a special time for sure. What are the parts of the Christmas celebration that are special to you? Maybe it's traditions that you you practice during this time, or maybe it's uh, family gatherings, or it might be looking at light displays in people's yards or on their houses, maybe doing your own decorating inside or out. Maybe it's the food. Got to have those Christmas cookies, right, and eggnog. But I think for a lot of us, one thing that makes Christmas so special is the music. Whether you like Bing Crosby or Mannheim Steamroller or Vince Guaraldi or George Friedrich Handel, the songs of the season are part of what makes it so special. I know Christmas songs always had a special place for me personally. So during Advent, we're going to look at five songs that are recorded in Scripture. Songs that are associated with Christmas. They may not be all that familiar to you. They certainly don't get read as much as the famous Christmas narrative in Luke chapter 2. And you can debate about whether these songs were actually sung or not. Music in the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago is quite a bit different than ours. Some of these may have just been recited or like poetry, like declarations. But whether sung or spoken, we're going to see how some of the people of that day reacted to King Jesus Christ coming to earth. And we're going to see that in each case, the reaction was one of worship. So as we begin, you can take the study guide out of your worship folder. And if you want to get out your old school paper Bible or fire up your app, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 eventually. We're going to take a quick side trip to John chapter 4, though. Now, before we look at the first of our Advent songs... I think we need to start by considering what worship is in the first place. We've already heard a a dictionary definition, but I think every one of us here has an idea in our own mind about what worship is. We just kind of know what it is. Or do we? Some people would say that worship is a gathering like the one we're having right now. Some people would say it's singing or music. Some people would say that worship is taking part in certain traditions or rituals. Some people would say that worship has to do with being at a certain place or maybe being in a particular position or posture. Now think about what we just saw. Did those concert goers see their response to Bruno Neptune as worship? Did those church goers worship just because they showed up at a worship gathering? 
Regardless of what we think worship is, I think the best way to define it is to consider what Jesus had to say about it. He ought to know, right? He defined for us what it means to be a worshiper for a Samaritan woman that he met at a well. And it's recorded for us in John chapter 4. Let me read in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now Jesus tells this woman at this well that externals aren't what worship is all about. Location doesn't matter. Tradition and ritual aren't it. I don't see a single word here about music. Jesus says the Father wants worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. Now that sounds real mysterious, I think, and so it's easy to read that and have no idea what Jesus means, so we just move on. But I don't think Jesus is trying to be mysterious. I think he's actually telling us something that's very simple about what worship is. First, he says that true worshipers worship in spirit. What does that mean? It means that we worship when what is inside of us responds to God. Call that our heart. True worship isn't about externals like location or posture. It's a response that comes from the very core of our being. True worshipers worship God in spirit. Then Jesus says that true worshipers worship in truth. This part is, is telling us that we, we worship when we acknowledge the truth about who God is, what, what he's done, his, his character, his attributes, the wisdom of all of his plans. This part has to do with our mind. As we learn a bit more about who God is and what he's about, we can better respond to that truth. True worshipers worship God in truth. And notice, you can't separate the two. We can have feelings in our spirit that aren't based on truth. If we misunderstand who God is, his attributes, his character, it's going to hinder us from worshiping him the way that we should. Likewise, we can learn all about God and not worship him. In James 2.19, Pastor James says this, even the demons believe in God. They know the truth of who he is, but they're demons in the first place because they won't worship him. So is music worship? Not by itself. Not because it has godly words. Music can be a means to express worship. It all has to do with how we use it to respond to God and why. Is a gathering like this one worship? It can be. Might be for one person and not the next. It might be for you, but not for me. It all has to do with how we individually respond to what's going on in the gathering. Is raising your hands or clapping or kneeling worship? It depends. Is it a response to godly truth in your, in your very spirit that expresses itself through a particular posture or reaction? Can we worship through traditions or rituals? We can if they express truth about God and they help us to respond to that truth from the core of who we are. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? There's no one-size-fits-all answer to these questions. There's no simple formula, no cookbook recipe for worship. Worship is something that has to do with our knowledge and our feelings, our attitudes and motives. It's a personal thing 
between us and God. And yet, we can experience it in gatherings with many other people. Some of the times when I've worshipped the most deeply are in some of the largest gatherings I've ever been a part of. Maybe that's the mysterious part of worship, how it can be so personal, and yet we can experience it together as God's family. Does that make sense? You with me? Does that maybe make worship a little less mysterious? Okay. Then now that we've set the table on that, let's look at the first of our Advent songs. The song we're going to look at today is the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Luke records it in chapter 1 of his gospel, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This passage is commonly known as the Magnificat. And that title is just taken from the first word when said in Latin. Magnificat means to magnify or glorify. There's a lot to unpack in what Mary says here. But I think before we can grasp everything Mary is saying, let's take a step back and look at two things that are going to help us better understand the song. First, what is Mary responding to? Why does she say what she says in her song? I think to understand that, we've got to look back at verses 26 through 38. Luke first introduces us to Mary in those verses. It says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So here's Mary. We don't know exactly how old she was. It's a good guess based on their culture, 15, 16, something like that. It says she was betrothed to Joseph. Now, in that culture, betrothal was more than just, uh, you know, an agreement, a family agreement, or something like that. To break the betrothal, you would actually need a divorce. An angel pays Mary a visit, and not just any angel. 
but it says Gabriel. Gabriel was sent on some special missions through the years. He visited Daniel twice in Daniel chapters 8 and 9. And Gabriel also announced the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah in Luke 1.13. So when Gabriel shows up, Mary's afraid. Understandable. But Gabriel reassures her. He not only tells her not to be afraid, but he says that God is with Mary, that she's highly favored by God. And what Gabriel said evidently helped because Mary went from afraid to puzzled. It says she was trying to figure out what kind of greeting this might be. So Gabriel tells her she's going to have a son. And the passage makes it clear that Mary's a virgin, so she's like, uh, how's that possible? Gabriel tells Mary that nothing is impossible with God, and this child will be the very son of God himself. So Mary was afraid, and then she was puzzled, but by the end, she has a worship response. She says, I'm God's servant, so let it be just the way that you said. Mary exemplified what Paul would say in Romans 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Mary worshiped God in response to hearing her part in his plan. She responded in her very spirit to the truth of God's plan by saying, whatever you have for me, God, it's all good. Now, secondly... Let's look at how Mary responds. And I'm talking about the form of Mary's song. See, it wasn't composed in a vacuum. She didn't just make it up off the cuff, so to speak. Mary's song demonstrates her knowledge of Scripture. Now, how do I know that? Well, Mary's song is very similar to several Old Testament passages, but it's most similar to Hannah's prayer, which is recorded in 1 Samuel 2. You may not know that story. Hannah was a woman. She had no children. She desperately wanted to. In her distress, she poured out her heart to God. And she promised God if he would give her a son, she'd turn around and give him right back to him. And eventually, Hannah became the mother of Samuel, who grew up to be the prophet that guided the nation of Israel. Now, when Samuel was born, Hannah prayed a prayer, and it's very similar to Mary's song. We're not going to take a time to look at the whole prayer, but look at these highlights and compare it to Mary's song. Hannah says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Hannah says, There's none holy like the Lord. Mary says, Holy is his name. Hannah says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Mary says he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Hannah says those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Mary says he's filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he sent away empty. Now, notice Mary is not quoting scripture. She isn't repeating Hannah's prayer verbatim. It's more like she knew her scripture so well that when she expressed uh, expressed her praise to God, the kinds of thoughts and ideas that she had absorbed from scripture, scripture naturally came to the surface. That's why we've got to be in the Word. That's why we've got to let it dwell in us richly, like Paul says in Colossians 3.16. 
As we, so we, as we face the situations of our daily lives, the life-giving truth of Scripture can inform how we deal with and react to those circumstances. Mary did that, and we see it exemplified in her song. All right, so we've taken the long way around to get here. But now that we've laid the groundwork, let's look at what Mary says. And I see four parts to the song, so let's take them one at a time. First, Mary starts with praise. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary says that her soul magnifies the Lord. Right Now, to magnify is to make something bigger, right? So can Mary, or any of us for that matter, make God bigger than he already is? Well, of course not. It's more that Mary acknowledged how great God is. In other words, Mary is celebrating God for who he is. What's Mary doing here? She's worshiping in spirit. She's responding in her very being to truth. What truth? We'll get to in a minute. Then she says that her spirit rejoices in God. Mary reacts with joy to the news that Gabriel brought. She's favored by God. The Lord was with her. He had a special place for her in his plan. Now, let's not miss the fact that there was good reason for Mary not to react joyfully. Mary wasn't yet married to Joseph, and an unmarried woman in that culture, as she became a mother, she's going to face a terrible social stigma. And I wonder how much she realized what Jesus would eventually face in terms of opposition, suffering, followed by a cruel death, one that Mary would watch firsthand. But even so, she still reacted with joy. When we're in that sweet spot of where God wants us, when we're being exactly who he made us to be, when we subject ourselves as that living sacrifice that Paul talks about, I think that rejoicing is a natural reaction to that, regardless of what we might face as we do it. When we live out what God has for us, he's with each of us too, just like he was with Mary. You don't go it alone. And we can certainly rejoice in that. Next, the song tells what God did for Mary. Verse 48, For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary is a humble, ordinary girl. She was not from some noble family. She, she wasn't rich. She says God looked on her humble estate. But she knew her scriptures, so she obviously under, understood and accepted her role as God's servant. She wanted to do what would please God. She didn't say, you know, God, this seems like a pretty crazy plan. I think I'll pass. She didn't say, well, okay, I'll do it, but I don't really want to. She knew her role, the same role as any of us. When God calls, when he asks us to do something, our answer need to be, I'm your willing servant, God. I'll do whatever you ask. Mary also recognizes that those who would come after her would call her blessed. Now, is that because of how great Mary was? She tells us why. Not because of anything about herself, because he who is mighty, God himself, the one her soul magnifies, that mighty God has done great things for Mary. You can't help but feel blessed when God himself does something for you. And for sure, Mary was bestowed a great honor. 
You know, God didn't care about Mary's social status or family name or bank account. God blessed Mary not because he was impressed with her resume, but because of her humility and willingness to follow his plan. Mary knew her scriptures. She probably knew Isaiah 66, verse 2 very well. God says this, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Or in James 4, 6, Pastor James says it this way, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Throughout history, God has always used ordinary people in his plan. He always seems to seek out that person we would think is the least likely to get the nod. When God was appointing the young man that would eventually replace Saul as king of Israel, he said this, 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. All generations will call Mary blessed because God looked on her heart, and he was pleased with what he saw there. So he called Mary to be a key player in his glorious mission to rescue mankind. All because Mary understood her place in relationship to who God is and her role in that. See, Mary worshipped in truth. And she did so from her very spirit. The third part of the song talks about what God does in general. Mary continues to demonstrate her understanding of who God is by talking about his characteristics and what he does. Middle of verse 49, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. Mary recognizes that God is holy. That means that God is perfect. You know, we try to understand God in the context of ourselves. But even though we're creating God's image, God's ways are far above our ways. Everything about God, his, his attributes, his character, his actions, they all mesh together perfectly in a way that we call holiness. Then Mary moves from saying that God's holy into how that expresses itself. And she mentions five ways. First, God shows mercy to those who fear him. Now, the word fear isn't like being afraid, like, oh, I'm afraid of God. It's more like showing a healthy respect or honor. This is going back to what we saw in Isaiah 66 and James 4. God shows favor to those who are humble. He lifts up those who are contrite. God shows them mercy. And since he's perfect and doesn't change, He's done that through all the generations. Secondly, God shows his strength. We used to say around here, how big is God? Big enough. When you're in need, you can turn to God and know he's got the strength, you don't. I was recently reading in the Psalms and came across Psalm 46.1. I'm sure that many of you know it well. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. We recently got news that my dad has a very aggressive form of cancer. Now, my dad knows Jesus, so he knows where his ultimate destination is. But it's still not easy to face. 
He needs strength to go through that. I'm reminding myself daily that God is our refuge and strength. Third, God thwarts the proud. Yet another indicator here that God lifts up the humble, but he opposes the proud. Remember a few weeks ago in James 4.13, we saw that verse about how we shouldn't boast about tomorrow, where it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. When Mary says God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, she's talking about the very same thing. God sees the broad sweep of everything, but we puny humans, we make all these grand plans and leave God out. God will oppose the proud, the arrogant, those who don't understand their humble estate like Mary did. Fourth, God doesn't care about your social status. You you seen a theme here? The mighty on their thrones, those who are trusting in their titles or positions or power, God's bringing them down. But those of humble estate, those who... There's those words again. God lifts them up. God levels the playing field. Acts 10.34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Lastly, God fills the hungry but empties the rich. Now this is similar to those last two. If you're trusting in your money you'll ultimately see you really ought to trust in God. On the other hand, if you're hungry and poor, but you trust in God, he's going to fill you with good things. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to dump a truckload of cash on you. There's plenty of other good things in life besides money. These five things that God does, they all remind us that God's a God of justice. He's all about overturning things that man sees as right or just. I often call it the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, except that it's not God that's upside-down, it's us. It's only upside-down to us because our perspective is wrong. We need to understand how God sees things. Because God's holy, because His character is perfect, it expresses itself in setting right what's wrong. Mary understood those truths about who God is. And by celebrating him, she worshiped in her spirit. And finally, the last part of the song, Mary talks about what God had done for Israel. Verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Israel certainly had its share of trouble throughout the centuries. And most of the time, those troubles came when Israel disobeyed God. But even when Israel wasn't faithful, God always was. All the way back to Abraham and throughout all the long years, God guided Israel using leaders and prophets. God always kept his word. Mary knew that God is faithful. That hasn't changed, by the way. God's still faithful today. You might be facing difficult circumstances. You might be here today going, you know, God's forgotten me. But if you're one of God's children... If you fear him, if you're contrite and humble in heart, mark it down. God is with you just like he was with Mary. When we understand who God is, when we echo back to him the truth of his character and his holiness, and we do so from the core of our spirit, we worship him. Are you one of those worshipers God's seeking today? 
Do you worship him in spirit and truth? Is there something else on the throne of your heart? Do you respond more to a, a concert or a sporting event than you do to God? Are there other priorities in your life that trump God? You see, even though true worship is from our spirit, what's going on inside us expresses itself through our actions. Mary talked about how God's character expresses itself through what he does. Likewise, our esteem for God, or lack of it, expresses itself through our priorities and what we do. I hope that each of us will make true worship of Jesus Christ a priority throughout this Advent season. Now, before we wrap up today, I think we just need to take a couple of minutes to talk about some misconceptions about Mary. Some folks take things from this passage that aren't what it's saying. First, some people say that Mary is holy. That's not what this says at all. It says that Mary is blessed and that God is holy. And that's coming from Mary herself, by the way. It's not like somehow she misunderstood that, and so there's been this mis misconception on her part that's kind of been perpetuated through the years. Mary knew she wasn't perfect. In this song, even calling herself blessed is not some kind of statement about Mary's greatness or status. Mary is joyful because it's God who blessed her. She rejoices because she understands grace, that she's God's unworthy servant with all her flaws, and yet God looked on her favorably. Her song deflects all claims of greatness from herself and toward God. And that's a good example for every one of us to follow, by the way. All right, well, you might be saying, well, Mary, she's just being humble. She's just not realizing her true status in God's eyes. Well, let's consider then what Jesus Christ himself said about that. Listen to what Luke says in chapter 11, starting in verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, I'm sure this lady in the crowd, she meant well. She was trying to be kind. But Jesus did what Mary did. He deflected all the claims of greatness away from Mary and back toward God. Now, Jesus is not denying that Mary is blessed. She is. This, the song says so. God gave her a great honor in calling her to be such a key part of his plan. She was the most favored woman on earth. But some of her reacted to that. Mary herself would not want to be idolized. And I think her song clearly reflects that. So what's Jesus saying to this woman in the crowd and by implication to us here today? He's saying we can even be more blessed than Mary by being his obedient follower. In other words, follow Mary's example. Be his joyful, willing servant. Hear and understand God's word and do it. Worship him in spirit and truth. Finally, we need to understand one last thing about that phrase, humble estate that Mary uses twice in her song. There's an important dual meaning here I don't want us to miss. Yeah, she's saying she wasn't anybody special, humanly speaking. But Mary is also telling us explicitly that she was not sinless, as some people claim. That same word Mary uses is also used in Philippians 3.21. Listen to what Paul is saying there. I'm going to read starting in verse 20. 
But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that's the word, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That phrase there, lowly body, that's the word. It's talking about our current body, what the Bible calls the flesh, the sinful body that we war against today, as opposed to the glorious body Paul's talking about too here, the one we'll one day have in heaven that's perfect and sinless. Mary's use of that word tells us that she realizes she was a sinner. But there's another more easy clue to pick up. In verse 47, she says, her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. If Mary was sinless, she wouldn't need a Savior. But Mary clearly says that she does. And so does every one of us here today. Now, maybe that concept of a Savior is unfamiliar to you. You may ask, what do I need to be saved from? Well, to answer that, you have to understand why God sent Jesus to earth to be born of Mary in the first place. We've already talked about how God is holy. But we aren't. We, we sin. We, we do things that break God's law. The Bible says that every one of us has done so. The problem is that since God is holy, sinless, perfect, he can't tolerate sin. And the grading system is pass-fail. You're either sinless or you're guilty of breaking God's law. And every one of us is guilty. The penalty is death. But God wants to have a relationship with us, despite our sin. So he formulated a plan, the plan in which Mary played such a critical part. God himself would come to earth as a human baby in the form of Jesus. Jesus would do what we could not do, live a perfect human life. Why did he do that? Because for each of us to be restored to that relationship with God despite our sin, someone had to pay the price for what we've done. And it had to be someone perfect. Jesus is the only one that meets the criteria. So Jesus would die a cruel and undeserved death on a cross to take the place for each of us to pay for our sins. All we have to do is accept his free gift on our behalf. We commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus through the bread and the cup, representing the broken body, spilled blood of Jesus. And we're going to do that in just a minute. If you're God's servant, if, if you've accepted that sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, please partake today as part of your worship in spirit and truth. If you've not accepted the work of Jesus on the cross for you, or you're not sure about that, our prayer partners are going to be available. They'll be up here on the sides. Come talk to one of them. They would love to walk you through how you can know for sure that you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're part of his forever family. I'm going to pray and then we can all respond to what Jesus has done for us. God, this morning as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, I pray, God, that it would be fueled by a desire to worship in spirit and truth. Help us throughout this Advent season to put aside presents and gatherings and food and focus on what's truly important. 
Help us to remember why we celebrate this season in the first place. May we worship you like we never have before. God, if there's one here this morning who does not know you, who's not one of your children yet, who doesn't understand the sacrifice that you've made, God, give them the the boldness to come and talk to one of the prayer partners this morning so they can find out how to accept that free gift that you've given us, that you paid such a high price for. Now, God, just uh, give us a great time celebrating what Jesus has done for us and remembering that sacrifice, the high price it cost. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.